This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week, we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue and the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. This week, what's behind the rise in workers' wages? Plus, how painless is assisted dying? And finally, are NFTs memes or masterpieces? First up, workers' wages are rising faster than they have in years. Why? That's the question Matthew Lynn tries to answer in our cover story this week. He joins me now, along with Guardian columnist Simon Jenkin. Matthew, in this week's cover story, you look at the extraordinary changes we've seen in the labour market in the last year. Workers' wages are rising, but at the same time, the labour shortage has led to empty shelves and closed restaurants. To what extent do you think Brexit's behind all this? Uh, well, I mean, Brexit certainly hasn't helped. I mean, it's, definitely, it's, definitely, it's, it's, it's certainly a factor in what's going on. I mean, just to sort of step back for a moment, I mean, uh, certainly on, on the wages front, you know, it, it's, it's extraordinary. It's quite short term. We don't quite know how long it's going to last. But, you know, accelerating wages of 7 or 8% across the board, 20 to 30% in certain blue collar sectors, such as truck driving and warehousing and, and other areas like that, you know, kind of things we haven't seen since, um, you know, the immediate kind of post-war boom. Is Brexit to blame for that? It's definitely part of the story. You know, we've stopped free movement with Eastern Europe, which, you know, a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of the British economy, we use it kind of like a backup generator of a factory. You know, it was kind of there. If you had any problems, you know, with cleaning a hotel room or serving coffee or getting a van to go somewhere, you know, you could find some Polish or Hungarian or Romanian people to do it for you. So we kind of use that as backup and the backup is gone. And I think that's creating problems. But, there, you know, you can't exaggerate because there are other things going on around the world. We're seeing the same kind of wage inflation in the United States, we're seeing it in Germany, we're seeing accelerating wages in those economies. You know, Germany hasn't left the EU, I don't think, unless I miss something. America hasn't left the EU unless I miss something. So, you know, I think there are a bunch of things coming together. Brexit is one of them. The pandemic is one of them. And then I think there are just some longer demographic ch- changes, which we could talk about in a moment. And it's, it's kind of a bit like a short squeeze. What in the city they call it a short squeeze. You know, once things get very, very tight, then little marginal differences lead to big spikes in prices. You know, on the business pages, you see it in the oil price sometimes. It goes crazy upwards or goes crazy downwards. And that's part of a process of readjustment. And because supply is very tight, you know, price movements suddenly become very dramatic. And at the moment, we're seeing that in the labor market. And we can talk about this in a second. You know, we've got to step back a minute and say, well, you know, is that okay? I mean, you know, higher wages, you know, there's, there's a whole body of thought that thinks, thinks ordinary people earning a bit more isn't so terrible. And Simon, do you agree with what Matthew's just said? Do you think it's uh, Brexit might be a smaller part of a more global trend rather than uh, you know, the primary cause of the current labour shortage? Well, I don't. I I think to this extent, I agree with Matthew. I don't think we know yet. This has been a traumatic shock. I mean, the biggest since the war, and it's impossible to tell what the real underlying causes are. Um, each in their different ways. Certainly. Uh, and I was talking to someone last night who's, who's in the hotel business who says who says it's absolutely nothing to do with COVID. It's all to do with Brexit. I, I argued against that. I said, it seems to me you just can't say that as yet. And as Matthew points out, it's, it's common in, in plenty of European countries and in America, for that matter. It's what you get when you have an economic shock. So leave that to one side. 
My problem is whether, in a sense, uh, COVID is now covering up for what I still regard as a serious deficiency in Brexit, um, which is leaving the single market. I'm not fully against Brexit, although I'm virtually against it. Uh, I've always been a Eurosceptic, and I don't like big organisations like the EU. But I think leaving the single market was a major category error, and I think we're seeing one of the consequences of that in what's happening in the labour market now. I mean, uh, do, do you think then, Simon, and you wrote this thesis in a recent article for The Guardian, that Britain should have, could have and should have left the EU while staying in the single market. I mean, do you think now Johnson should go back to the EU with his tail between his legs and sort of begging to rejoin? Do you think that's the solution? Yes, I do. I mean, I just, I, th- I honestly do. That. I mean, I watched this right from the start. I mean, I was, I was a enth- real enthusiast for, for, for Thatcher's Single Market Act. I thought it was a brave thing to do. She defended it with great gusto. Until now, the Tory party has always been in favour of free trade. It was a pretty cynical act by Boris Johnson to say, I interpret EU Brexit as being leaving the single market, lock, stock and barrel, customs union and all. Uh, And I know the arguments, I know them backwards and forwards, I've been involved in so many of them. It was a mistake. And uh, soft Brexit was an option. The EU were prepared to negotiate it. They honestly thought they would be negotiating it at one point. It was a straightforward political, mildly xenophobic act to say we're going to leave the single market because it enables us to control immigration. We're now paying the price of that decision. But what do you think about Matthew's comment that a lot of the time employers were sort of using a lot of cheap EU labour as, in his uh, analogy, like a sort of backup generator? Well, I like Matthew's article, but I felt I'd read it, Tony Benn, about 1975. It was the Labour Party's argument against joining the common market. It was essentially a protectionist argument for maintaining Britain's various restrictive practices. I'm sure it's the consequence, or it's, uh, and many, to many people, a very happy consequence of the present uh, crisis in, in many of the service sectors, that many poor, poorly paid people will be paid better. I can't argue against that as such. I just say it's the, the argument used by the American trade unions against Mexican labour. It's exactly the same argument. I just believe in free trade, and I'm amazed that the Spectator and so many people in the Tory party don't, largely because they are required by the holy writ of Brexit also to say we should leave the single market, and that's a nonsense. Matthew, would like to respond to that? Do you think that your argument is essentially a protectionist one? I'm, I'm, flattered, I'm flattered to be compared to Tony Benn in 1975. Um, he was a great speaker, as I, I'm sure Simon remembers. Um, <laughs> I mean, I agree with Simon on, on some of the points. I agree with him less on others. I think the single market, you know, that ship has sailed. I mean, you know, there were, there were obviously good arguments in the wake of the referendum for staying in the single market, how far you could separate that out from freedom of movement and labour, where that was on the table. But in the end of the day, that's not what happened. And, and we're not going to go back into the single market now after all the kind of disruption that we've seen. I mean, I think I think on the bigger picture, I'd make two points back at Simon. I think, you know, there is an element of protectionism in here and, and he's making some valid points. But I think we're not seeing the kind of mobility of Labour. I think we're seeing a bigger global shift. And that's just partly and in Britain because we're so obsessed by Brexit and we're still kind of fighting that cultural and political war and seeing everything through that lens. You know, we're seeing this through through the lens of Brexit and interpreting everything that way. But actually, we're seeing less mobility. So I think it's really interesting that, you know, that Germans can't get the Hungarian truck drivers anymore. You know, the, the, the head of the Federal Employment Agency is saying they need 600,000 more workers from Eastern Europe because Germany 
the within the within the EU system of freedom of movement, Germany was the other big place apart from the UK where people went. And, you know, the Americans, you know, aren't getting the Mexicans. The number of Mexicans working in the United States legally—that's kind of an important caveat—has uh, dropped by almost a million or so in the last decade. I think people aren't moving from the developing world to the developed world in the same way, and we could, you know, probably spend hours discussing the reasons for that. So I think it's a mistake to see it just in terms of Brexit. And just on, uh, you know, I think Simon's point about not believing in free markets. You know, I believe in free markets probably more more than most people. I, I hope I do, but I do think you have to have a caveat when it comes to freedom of movement of labor. I don't think free, you know, completely open borders necessarily work. I have free movement in goods, free movement in capital, but I think labor is, is slightly different because it's people. And I think one of the things that happened in the UK economy with freedom of movement is that we created industries that need low labor, need cheap labor. We created a kind of secular economy whereby because cheap labor was available in unlimited numbers, employers who relied upon cheap labor, industries that relied upon cheap labor, so you know, a lot of agricultural industries, a lot of hospitality industries, were only viable when they had that resource. And actually, they weren't very high productivity industries. They weren't really the industries of the future. And I think we shifted our economy too much towards that. And it's kind of painful when you withdraw it, but I think actually over two or three years, it'll be better. Well, when you're talking about this economic rebalance, and overall you think it will be better, but if, so if, if workers are the winners, then I think we do need to talk a little bit about who you think the losers will be here. I mean, I don't think many of our listeners will be too upset if the FTSE 100 CEOs have to put a bit more behind workers' wages. But do you worry about you know smaller businesses and their survival, or even about, or about the consumer too? I mean, if, if the current labour shortage is leading to empty shelves in supermarkets, and there's even talk of Christmas shortages, I mean, how long should the public have to put up with these empty shelves? Um, I, you know, I think there's going to be a certain amount of, amount of disruption. I mean, what, you know, you just got to accept that. The free mar- a free market works through disruption. It works through price signals. It works through shocks. And normally that happens in quite moderate ways. They're just little tiny shifts in prices, which lead to little shifts in supply and demand. But occasionally you get big shocks and you see it in the oil market, the corn market, commodities markets. At the moment, we're seeing it in the British labour market. So I think there is going to be a little disruption. It usually sorts itself out in about six months or so as some businesses reconfigure and supply chain. Um, get reorganized as slightly as people retrain and people change professions. So I think it will sort itself out. I don't think it'll last for a long time. In terms of the losers, yes, I think, you know, we'll see some of it, we'll see some impact on consumers. You know, there's no question about that. Some things will cost more. It depends on the pricing power of the company. Look, if, you, if you're already a company and your labor costs, you know, you've got to pay the truckers 30% more. Uh, you've got to pay the cleaning staff 20% more. It depends on your pricing power, doesn't it? You know, each individual company will make a decision. Some people can put up their prices 20%. They're starting to see that. I've been seeing my coffee in London you know, which was an industry very highly reliant on cheap immigrant labor, the coffee industry. We know that just from the people we chat to when we order a cappuccino. I'm noticing the coffee is going up a little bit more. It's not the end of the world if I have to pay a bit more for my coffee and, and the people serving the coffee get paid a bit more. That's that's not a terrible thing. That's just an economic rebalancing. Other companies won't be able to do that. I mean, I know Cicado taking quite a big hit on profits because of increased costs. You know, I think that I don't think Ocado can increase their prices. It's too competitive with Tesco and Amazon. Amazon will just come in and crush them if they do that, because that's what Amazon do. And I think that has to take the hit to the shareholders. But again, you know, it's not the end of the world. This is just rebalancing. You know, it's not the end of the world if shareholders make a little bit less money and van drivers make a bit more. Simon, what are your thoughts about the rise in inflation? And are you worried about how fast it's rising now and the rising cost of living? Well, I go along with Matthew's thesis that we're now seeing a massive adjustment. That adjustment was predicted 
by both sides, I think, prior to 2016. But the problem I had at the time when I was having these arguments endlessly was, can you please tell me what the value in doing it is? I can see the value for leaving the EU. I really could. I didn't want to join. I mean, I'm old enough to remember all these great battles. I don't like those sorts of organisations. But I do believe in free trade. Everything that Matthew said is a downer, basically a disadvantage. And he keeps saying, well, it's not very much, it doesn't really matter, I mean, a few people are going to get hurt, a few care homes make clothes, we just don't know what's going to happen really, and I, I buy into that. What I cannot see is the patent advantage for doing it in the first place. And since it is clearly, in many cases, causing severe disruption, I mean, I, I listen to farming today every day, I don't know why I do, but there I do. I mean, farmers every morning are screaming, and they're being told by Pretty Patel to get lost. And they have, it seems to me, a reasonable argument. The same applies to the care sector, which I know fairly well. The same applies to the hospitality sector, which I know fairly well. All these three major sectors of the British economy, not trivial, but but major sectors, farming less so, are clearly hurting hard. Now, that's fine if you can say, oh, we've got all these wonderful deals with the rest of the world. It's the language with which the justification is made for leaving the EU that I, I find worrying. It seems to me that a lot of people signed up to Brexit for good reasons, they were then told, right, you're, you're in our party now, this is binary, you've got to do everything we say for the reasons we're going to give you. You're going to go around saying this is tremendously in our benefit. Well, I just don't believe it. I've followed all these arguments. I think it was a political decision for political reasons, and no one dared mention the economic downturn. And we're going to see an economic downturn, and I can't see the point. We've always been a free market country. The Tory party has been a free market party, at least since Peel, and I just can't see the advantage in it. And it's sad. It's it's now required of people who are in favour of Brexit to defend this protectionism. Thank you, Simon, and thank you, Matthew. Next up, Dr Joel Zivert is Associate Professor of Anesthesiology and Surgery at the Emory School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. In this week's Spectator, he writes that the process for assisted dying might not be as peaceful as those who support it claim. He joins us now from America, along with Dr. Jackie Davis, a radiologist and chair of the Healthcare Professionals for Assisted Dying. Dr. Zivert, the main thrust of your piece is that the current method for assisted dying, as used in the United States, is not, you believe, painless, peaceful or dignified. Can you explain for listeners why you think that? Sure. I came to this through a bit of a roundabout way. My Connection to assisted dying began actually with my work in uh, capital punishment here in the United States. And capital punishment in the United States has gone through various methods that will then, of course, produce death. And the current most common method is through something called lethal injection. And lethal injection then is a, uh, an injection of a medication. And there are various kinds of medications that have been used. Classically, the first medication, the most common medication, was a drug called pentobarbital. And before pentobarbital, there was another drug called sodium thiopental. These are drugs both in the same class. These drugs are in the class of drugs known as barbiturates. They can be taken as pills as well. In execution, they're injected. And the experience of an execution when witnessed by this method is that really not much generally happens. There may be small things that occur, some twitching, some coughing, that sort of thing. In the U.S., the law specifically requires, mandates, that uh, punishment, and in this case execution being a punishment, cannot be cruel. 
And it's difficult to define cruelty because, of course, the person who really would be the, um, you know, the best arbiter of cruelty is no longer able to speak because they are now dead. And so it falls upon the witnesses when witnessing execution to make sense of what they think that they see. And generally, they don't see much. This was my experience as well. I was invited to watch an execution by an inmate, Marcus Wellens. I had been retained as an expert in his defense. And uh, when I watched his execution, I also didn't see very much. Uh, he asked me, he thought maybe because of my medical background, I might see something more that others had not seen. And I really couldn't see much. So what happened later on, actually it was a few years hence, that I was given a, uh, a list of autopsies that had been performed and executed uh, inmates. And the reason for this query to me had to do with the measured blood levels of drugs in their, in their body. But what I discovered, in fact, in my possession was a full autopsy that included an examination of all of the organs, internal organs of the body. And when I went through this, something struck me immediately that was a surprise, which was that the lungs of most of these inmates executed, in this case by pentobarbital, were very heavy, we say. The lungs are normally weighed as a part of an autopsy, and these lungs were twice the normal weight in most cases. And not only were the lungs heavy, but they were full of fluid, and it was also noted that there was congestion within the lungs themselves. And this could not have happened except as a direct consequence of the method of execution itself. This has a name, it's called pulmonary edema. That's the technical name. And if a person has pulmonary edema, they certainly would not be able to lie in a recumbent position, which is how people who are executed are lying. People who are executed are brought in and, and they speak. Marcus Wellens spoke uh, before his execution. He could not have spoken if he was in pulmonary edema. So it was my contention that, to a surprise, that the execution method itself caused this lung injury that could have been experienced by Marcus Wellens and by others. And so my, my concern here is that, are we clear in the way that we understand how exactly drugs of this class actually kills people? And the claim that these drugs kill people by, say, maybe a common understanding that people just fall off to sleep and then die is factually incorrect. That is not at all the case. And, and that's my contention. That's my concern here. So when it comes to assisted dying, are they the same, are they the same drugs being used in America or similar drugs? The same class of drugs are being used. Now, assisted dying takes different forms. It can be delivered via pills or it can be also in injection. I know that in Canada, for example, assisted dying can be done by injection as well as pills and other jurisdictions have similar models. So my concern here is, again, because these are the same classes of drugs that have now, I think, clearly demonstrated this kind of organ injury that would be experienced and quite painful. I have a concern here that those who are advocating assisted dying have not been forthcoming or even curious exactly as to how people die. This is separate from whether or not they should die. This is not my comment here. I think it's time though that we are honest and realistic as to exactly how this kind of death really does take place. Well, Dr. Davis, your chair of the healthcare professionals for assisted dying. Did reading the article give you any pause for thought? <laughs> My colleague looks like a nice person, but I thought it was a really irresponsible piece of um, unscientific shroud waving, actually. 
and you know assisted dying has brought comfort to many many people in the world and to their relatives and I very much fear that reading this will frighten people and I think that's shocking because people are dying terrible deaths over a prolonged period and assisted dying brings comfort to them and well brings death to them with ease and to their families and this you know I've been involved in the assisted dying movement for over a decade now I've never heard anything about this before so that's just a starting point I mean you know execution is different from assisted dying there's all sorts of points I can make but I was completely shocked by this and I was surprised the spectator published it actually because I think it's irresponsible and unnecessary if my colleague thinks this is a real thing then let's go away and look at it but before you've got any proof I've got some quotes here I am quite certain that the majority of cases are very painful I, I, I don't understand that these people are going to die five minutes later what is to say the same thing won't happen in the UK about the drug supplies I mean that's just pure speculation it's very likely pulmonary edema would be found well it's very likely it won't be found I mean that's just that's just unscientific Many will be in great discomfort and drowning. That is so irresponsible. I'm sorry, you don't know that. It's a completely different scenario. I am shocked that this would be published before we know anything about it. That's my initial response. Dr. Zivit, would you like to respond to any of that? Listen, uh, I'm an intensive care doctor, and in my capacity, uh, I've been practicing for 25 years, and I've been the witness to many, many deaths. And I'm alive to this problem of the nature of dying and how death can be painful. I'm aware of this. And I think that to say that people who have been killed by assisted dying have experienced relief from it, well, I guess to be fair, we can't really know. The claim, of course, is that death relieves suffering. I suppose it does, but it also relieves everything. So I, I, I think it's, it's, it's correct that after a person dies, they have no further experience. But I think that assisted dying, this, the same criticism that has been brought against me, I could bring against them, is that I'm not aware of any kind of rigorous evaluation of the technique of dying. And the reason why we have picked injections or, 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 or consumption of medications is because it provides, I think, a worrisome false cover with respect to that this is medicine, and so medicine can only do you know, do good and not do harm. There are many other ways that people may choose to die. Assisted dying is not quick. It can take a long time. There are many problems with assisted dying that have been documented. And I, I, in no way am I saying, in saying this, am I saying that people who are suffering, that their suffering should be set aside. I believe that we should take their suffering seriously, so seriously, in fact, that it's time that we look with much more care at the way exactly assisted dying is taking place. And uh, let's just be honest and reveal it and evaluate it. One thing that could occur, for example, would be to perform autopsies on people who have died by assisted death to determine whether or not there are some unforeseen harms that have not taken place, uh, that, that rather were difficult to witness under the circumstances. It, what was so shocking to me was having looked at executions and the autopsies, you just can't really see it. So an assisted dying, honestly, is a bit of a curated event. You know, it's also for the witnesses. If the witnesses want to see something that they believe to be, you know, they want to see something they believe to be peaceful. I understand that. 
And so assisted dying in that regard may work outwardly, but the inward experience you know, can't be known. You can't ask people who are now dead, did they experience their assisted dying experience in the way that they imagined it would be. The reality probably is that in order to get from suffering to death, there may be more suffering in between. Now, that may be that people are accepting of that. They may say, well, if I'm suffering for a period of time, you know, minutes, a half an hour or so before I die, then so be it. But let's just be clear and honest that that also may be taking place here. And I think that these autopsy findings, you know, are, are pretty damning. And so, you know, that's my concern. So, Dr. Davis, do you think that is at least the risk that, uh, as with these autopsy results, that a patient could be suffering even if there's no visible sign of pain? Well, firstly, you know, assisted dying is a completely different scenario from execution. Clearly, these people aren't tied down. It's something that they've asked for. But I take, I take my colleague's point here that who knows what's happening after they take that. The average time to die in Oregon, who've got the most experience, no injections there, it's all taken by the patient. I think the word killing was very emotive there because these patients take the medication themselves. The average time to die is somewhere between 5 and 35 minutes and they've got their families around them. And of course, it is described as peaceful. There'd be one or two complications. They don't have a health professional there in Oregon, so we, we only have the family's accounts of what goes on. My, my concern about this, and I absolutely take the point that you, you have discovered something through autopsies on people who've been executed using the same drug, but via lethal injection, not via ingestion, um, is that you've discovered something and you're worried about it. So I would say, Let's go away and find out about this. But to publish something like this, talking about drowning, pain, you know, I'd be very interested to know what your personal position was on assisted dying, because it sounds to me as though, uh, well, let's, let's leave it there. I'd be interested to know what your personal position was. But there are a lot of people, you know, we've had 6,000 deaths in Oregon over the, over the period. There are people who have a good memory, and you're right, it's both for the patient and it's, a, it's for their family. There will be people who have a good memory of a loved one's death, as opposed to the terrible suffering they might have faced, who will now be thinking, oh my God, you know, what happened to them? Did they drown? Was it a terrible time for them? So I think, first of all, if you're worried about this, please go away and find out about it. But don't publish articles like this that are going to really alarm those who've been involved in assisted deaths. Secondly, I'd say you are comparing, even if you're right, five minutes to 35 minutes while somebody dies with a potential of days and weeks more of horrible suffering for these people. I mean, you know, you know, I've been involved in this for a long time. People die vomiting, they die bleeding to death, they die with feculent vomiting. You can't compare the, the suffering of a, a prolonged bad death. And we've all seen them. I mean, we're both doctors. We've seen them both in our, in our practice and in our families and the misery that people suffer with what might happen in that five or ten minutes after they take the, the thing. So I'd say, please, go away, do your research. Your point is interesting, and perhaps you're right. But even so, if you were to say to people who want an assisted death because of their suffering, actually, you know, for five minutes you may have a bad time, it's about informed consent, isn't it? I, I, I was so shocked by this article, I, I can't tell you. You know, let, let's find out. In America, they have the American Academy of Medical Aid in Dying. And that's for people, for doctors who want to be involved in you know, assisting patients to die when the patients have expressed that hope. 
And they support each other with research, with, with questions about how's the best way to do this, constantly trying to make it the, the best way of doing things. And throw the question into them. Do some research on this, but don't let this out to the public before you absolutely know what you're right about, because this article is full of speculation. And I, I challenge you over that. I think it's wrong to do it. But I want to ask you very quickly about the British Medical Association. It's just dropped its opposition to assisted dying. Um, and I believe this was your motion that brought this about. Is that, is that correct? So I got a motion through the BMA survey its members on what the BMA position should be. And 61% of the people who voted and 30,000 people voted. It's one of the biggest surveys ever on uh, doctor's views. 61% voted for the BMA to drop its opposition to assisted dying. Some of those wanted it to move to a neutral position, which is what it's done so that it can represent the spectrum of members. 40% of people who replied actually wanted the BMA to support legislation for assisted dying. So it was really important for us to know what doctors thought. And because we found out what doctors thought, then the BMA has changed its position. Dr. Sibbett, finally, so as well as what doctors think, here in the UK, around three quarters of the British public seem to support the assisted dying bill, at least according to a recent YouGov poll. I mean, do you think a relaxation of the law is inevitable because it is fundamentally what it seems the public want? Well, look, here's my concern, and I just need to just respond also to my colleague's comment about that it, the onus is on me to determine exactly what is happening. I would push back on that and say, frankly, ma'am, the onus is on you. You, the people who are the advocates of assisted dying, it should fall upon you to determine what you've done. I mean, what you've basically done is also, frankly, could be construed as a poor experiment that you have not yourself conducted. So I've just discovered something. It's on you, once you propose this, to say that this is sound and reasonable, show me your evidence. Now, the second thing about whether or not assisted dying is something that uh, doctors should or should not support, well, you know, that's troubling because I would say that death is, is not a medical act. Killing is not a medical act. I think that, of course, 100% of my patients will eventually die. But I'm concerned about this as, an, as a matter of operations, that when you, once you allow killing to be a form of treatment, well, then it can be used all sorts of places. And I think that our responsibility is to reduce suffering, clearly, unambiguously, but to suggest that death is the way to reduce suffering, to eliminate suffering, I think that that's problematic when you operationalize that. That's just my 25 years of bedside experience. And I know, speaking from experience, that when death is available, there's concerns. Uh, our job is to protect vulnerable people, uh, you know, not to put them at risk. Dr. Zivit and Dr. Davis, thank you very much. And finally, what makes a meme a masterpiece? Jack Rivlin explains in this week's magazine how the NFT boom has transformed the digital art market. He joins us on the podcast with Nima Sagachi, Director of Middle Eastern, Islamic and South Asian Art at Bonhams. Jack, you start your piece by saying that you spent £4,000 on a digital image of the Mona Lisa. Now, for many of our listeners, that will sound a bit mad. Uh, can you explain why you did it? Uh, yeah, um, it's quite painful hearing it back for myself, to be honest. Um, I've been following the crypto space for a little while. I was quite late into it compared to the people who have made millions. So when I read about NFTs and this burgeoning new asset class, which is growing really fast and giving people huge returns, I was really intrigued. So I followed it for a while and I actually was sucked into the whole thing by a Damien Hirst project where you got given a physical painting or an NFT and you had a year to choose. 
And very so, quickly, sorry, just to interrupt, but can you just quickly define, it? I know it's a very complicated thing, but for a lot of our listeners, will you be able to just quickly define what an NFT is, just so you know what we're... Uh, I'm, uh, this may require correction from someone who knows more than me, but an NFT is a record of ownership which is hosted on the blockchain, which is the same technology that powers cryptocurrency, which means that there's an irrefutable record that you own something. I'm mainly talking about NFTs in relation to digital art and collectibles. So when I talk about NFTs here, I'm talking about buying something that only exists on the internet, that's a piece of art, there's no physical piece, and which there's a record of ownership for, which a lot of people will say is utterly ludicrous because you can just right-click and save as. But it's similar to how you can own a Van Gogh print, but you wouldn't own the original. There's still only one digital original with NFTs. So I got sucked in via a Damien Hirst project where there was both a physical and an NFT and I watched the price rise a lot. I bought it for $8,000 and at one point they were selling for $70,000. It's now down to about 30. I haven't sold. Um, and that got me the bug because I saw the big returns and then I started researching what the other opportunities were and I decided to buy a digital collectible card which depicts the Mona Lisa called Painting. Uh, very original. So uh, the attraction for me was this is one of the first ever pieces of digital art that's, that's an NFT, and it's the first depicting a woman. And my theory is that in 20 years, when adoption's more widespread, this would go up in value a lot. Well, Nima, we've just heard from Jad that some of these NFTs are selling for spectacularly large sums of money. What do you think is giving them this, this sudden value? And do you think it can, how long do you think it can continue? Yeah, thanks. It sounds like Jack had a lot of fun. And uh, I think that's one of the aspects of owning and trading NFTs that's uh, been somewhat overlooked by the traditional art world. The traditional art world is very, uh, has a very kind of uh, sophisticated social calendar where people kind of meet up, hobnob and buy things at art fairs. But the um, kind of NFT, social NFT world is, uh, is much more fast paced and it goes on... Uh, in Twitter, 24 hours a day, uh, kind of like a, a sort of casino that never closes. And, and it's not just focused on artworks and creative endeavors. There's a huge market for digital collectibles. And digital collectibles, like people that buy, you know, stamps and wine and uh, banknotes and medals, are not necessarily purely purchased and traded for their artistic value which is why some people are a little bit befuddled as to why these crypto punks are going for such uh, high sums. It's basically the production of the NFT has built scarcity into things, into objects that are basically, you know, brand new in the same way that uh, Panini would have built scarcity into football stickers when you were, you know, a teenager buying them and you ripped open a pack and you had like a shiny of, uh, you know, like Roy Keane, you get super excited. So they're basically recreating that the form of scarcity that you would have had with traditional collectibles, which is why the prices go so high. And the availability of money in the crypto uh, space is a new phenomenon because a lot of these people made their money in crypto, kept it in crypto. And for them, buying NFTs is just like a side shuffle of their crypto wealth. They're not thinking, uh, you know, like I have to sell a house or, you know, take my dollars and buy this. It's like I literally move my ethereum from here to here and um and i own a bunch of nfts so they see them as uh, equivalent stores of value 
So there are lots of different things at play that the traditional art market doesn't yet necessarily understand, but it is good fun. Uh, Jack, to what extent do you think NFTs are a fad or a mania of a kind? Or do you think, you know, as the world becomes ever more digital and ever more online, that it's inevitable that we'll find new ways to give value to virtual stuff? I think both of those things are happening at the moment, which is the point I make in my piece. Clearly, there is a big short-term bubble around these assets where people like me are pouring in their money because they've seen the huge rapid returns and they're basically playing a kind of slot machine game. In fact, there are a lot of similarities with slot machines right down to the sort of cartoon characters that you end up winning as your prize. So I think there is a short-term bubble at play, and I think you know people are going to lose a lot of money because they're buying it at a top, and they'll probably sell when it hits a low. But I believe in the long-term future of NFTs as a valuable asset class, I think in, you know, increasingly we live in digital worlds. We already see this, particularly with really young people, with teenagers who are spending a lot of time in gaming worlds that are very sophisticated. So a game like Fortnite is hosting a Martin Luther King exhibition, or recently hosted one. That's an example, a kind of rudimentary example of how you can have these digital experiences with, with, um, with art and, and with things, things that you see. I think increasingly we'll spend time in these virtual worlds and people will want status symbols and attractive art to display in their virtual homes and other spaces. So I'm really bullish on that long-term future. And I think at the same time, you know, back in the real world, we are going to have technology that allows us to display digital art that makes it look like physical art anyway. So I, I think those two worlds are going to combine more and more. If you think of a film like Minority Report, where, you know, not to use too crude an example, but you, know, you had sort of seedy punters with digital prostitutes, that's an illustration of how much people will live in, in virtual worlds in the future. And Nima, we, we've so far, we've been talking about NFTs very much as assets and their sort of financial value. But do you, do you, th- do you think they can have a uh, aesthetic value that could outlast the financial craze? I mean, some of the things that Jack writes about, they seem there, I mean, you mentioned this of cartoony, they're often almost intentionally, ironically bad <laughs> visually. But do you think there could actually be uh, some artistic value to NFTs that could survive? Yeah, I get this question a lot. It's like saying, is there any artistic value to oil paint? Like, it's, it's, it's all about what you do with it, right? I mean, it's, it's a lot of people that trash NFTs. It's like going into an art shop and being like, oh, you know, I hate these watercolors. Like, they make me sick. Like, at the end of the day, there is, to a degree, an aesthetic that's grown around the, the kind of media-facing side of NFTs. Because obviously the media is going to want to channel the most outrageous stuff uh, to people, you know. If something's like been like, you know, rendered lovely and uh, uh, highly technically skilled and has sold for a moderate amount of money, it's not going to make headline news. But, you know, uh, the NFT world is the same as the pool of uh, living artists. I mean, there's the good, bad, the bad and the ugly. And there's a lot of fluff that sells for a lot of money. And there's a lot of highly skilled production that goes kind of quietly under the radar. So, yes, you have the, f- the full gamut. You do obviously have a slightly lower barrier to entry. So it's kind of like, to a degree a lack of curation that you'd find, for instance, in social media. Uh, if you're looking for like talent on YouTube and social media, obviously you know, anyone with, a, anyone with a, a, a camera phone can basically have access to it in the same way that anyone with very basic technological skills can mint an NFT. So there's a lot to wade through. 
But if you ignore the fact that there has to be a certain aesthetic to an NFT and look at it more broadly, yes, it can be, it can be used to create anything of aesthetic value. I mean, if you resurrected a Renaissance artist and gave him a, a quick kind of um, primer in uh, how to graphic design, he could mint NFTs in a style that, you know, someone who's very cynical about contemporary art would like. So it's not a style, it's a medium. Let's not get it confused. There is a kind of, uh, as you said, a general kind of graphic novel quality to a lot of what's produced. And some of it is intentionally irrever irreverent, but it can be used for anything. So it's very hard to pass a value judgment over a, a medium. But ne Nima, are you struck as I am when you look at the most traded NFT art? at how kitsch and repetitive it is. Like, I'm, I'm just looking at the, the most traded in, in the last 30 days. The top five includes ape cartoons, which all, I think there's 10,000 different variations on the same thing. Then the mutant apes, which is a, a slight tweak on that, that design itself. And then a project called Loot, which is, correct me if I'm wrong, it's each person receives a card, which is a list of attributes for a character from a game which hasn't been invented yet. So you're just getting a, a list of words. No, but you're, you're, you're actually, you've got the, you hit the nail on the head in your article and what you're saying now, because if you walk into a casino and someone's playing on a slot machine, you don't go and ask them, oh, what do you think of the graphics? You know, do you like them? Like, you know what I mean? They, they basically trigger a base instinct of what is essentially going on in the mind of someone who's gambling. And I'm, I'm telling you, I, people that collect and trade crypto punks and board apes are not doing it for their aesthetic value. And actually, I think they're quite honest about it. It, it, it is much more something that is considered uh, co the collectible category. I don't think people are sitting and marveling at the uh, like artistic grace of uh, kitsch ape. I would place it more in uh, kind of like a trading game for collectibles, etc. But then, yeah, those are the most traded just because I think they play on, you know, they play on people's baser instincts because people can make a lot of money out of them. And also because there is a game aspect to it. But then you have, if you look a little bit more connoisseurship, for instance, at Super Rare, you can find an artist like Hexarac. He's basically like a 3D chip designer for Nvidia and he creates immensely complicated three-dimensional ob like virtual objects, uh, like improbable robotic objects that you would just marvel at. Uh, okay, they're not like highly traded. They're not as easy to trade. But, you know, it's the difference between someone who likes playing chess and someone who likes a slot machine. And there are always going to be more people that are playing slot machines than there are chess. So I, I agree with you, but I'm not that disheartened about it because it seems totally natural to me that it's, uh, it's fun, quick, easy, and you can make money off it. So it's a no-brainer as to why there's more people doing it. So don't get too angry, you know? <laughs> Finally, Nima, have you bought an NFT? And Jack, do you regret buying yours? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, i bought a few, to be honest, with a mixture of, uh, aesthetic and, and, and value-based thinking. I'm not really in a hurry to kind of track the prices and stuff. I, I'm willing to just let it, uh, simmer, you know, even for a couple of years and then, and revisit it and, and see what happens. So yeah, regret hasn't set in yet, but uh, I don't know what Jack, how Jack feels. Um, I've got a mix. I've got ones which are, I, I like the aesthetics and I'm, happy to hold those for 10 years, uh, like the Damien Hurst one, I'll hold that. And then I've got uh, my Mona Lisa card, which isn't even unique, there are 1400 just of that design. 
I, <laughs> I mean, I bought that at the absolute <laughs> top of the market and I certainly regret it a bit, although it seems to be coming back. I think the, the kind of Del Boy get rich quick case for that card is still, still stands and I think I'll make a small profit with it, hopefully with my friend who went halves with me. And then the others were so cheap that they're just kind of punts. So I'm, I'm not feeling the sweaty remorse that I felt when I was <laughs> in at the top of the GameStop saga or any other get-rich-quick scheme that's burned me in the last two years. But I think people should be careful. I think some of these cartoony ones that are big at the moment could uh, end up burning people. <laughs> I'm holding on for now. Yes, well, best of luck. <laughs> Nima and uh, Jack, thank you very much. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, why not pick up the latest issue of the magazine to read all of the pieces discussed? If you become a subscriber today, you can get 10 weeks of the magazine delivered to your door, plus a bottle of PIMS worth £25 for just £10. Just go to spectator.co.uk slash PIMS. I've been William Moore. Thank you for listening, and do join us again next week.